MSW Media. Republican Senator Richard Burr and three other senators sold large amounts of stock while they were receiving confidential briefings about the coronavirus. Is this insider trading? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, and I wanna take a moment now to uh, tell all of you, we did have the election uh, here in Illinois uh, this past Tuesday. Um, it doesn't look like Patty was victorious in that election, although the votes are still getting counted, some of the absentee ballots and so forth. Um, and she will, I just spoke to Patty this morning, she will be joining us in the future. Uh, but you can understand at this point uh, she wants to spend a little bit of time with her family uh, before rejoining us on the podcast. Um, but uh, Patty Vasquez uh, is is doing well, um, and she's got a great uh, future ahead of her. Uh, and the good news, the upside for all of us, is she will be joining us on the podcast soon. Today we got a really great episode for you. Um, but before we get to the episode and our very special guest, uh, let me uh, first thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Ariel Blocker, Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. You may notice this week that the sound quality is a little different than usual. And that's because we are not in the studio this week, and we aren't going to be in the studio for the foreseeable future, given the unfortunate pandemic we're all facing. And given that we're all doing this remotely, the sound quality may be a little bit different, uh, but we've done everything we can to keep the quality as high as possible so you can enjoy this, this uh, podcast even uh, during this pandemic. So now let me introduce our guest, Michael Schachter. Michael Schachter is a former federal prosecutor with the Southern District of New York, uh, where he is perhaps most famous for giving the closing argument at the Martha Stewart trial. Uh, he prosecuted some famous insider trading cases, and now he's a lawyer in private practice at Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, and he represents people who are accused of insider trading. Uh, so he has a tremendous amount of experience on this topic. I can't tell you how fortunate we are to have somebody who's such a national expert at insider trading to discuss this topic. And let me just warn all of you, I'm gonna, we're going to get into the weeds here because I, I know many of you are very uh, outraged by what Senator Byrd did, what these other senators did. And there's no question that the facts of this case are concerning. And I think a lot of people are rightfully calling for uh, Senator Burr's resignation. Uh, the issue that we're going to be discussing today is, w did Senator Burr break the law? Did he commit a crime? And could that case actually be brought by the SEC, which is the Securities and Com Exchange Commission that investigates uh, this type of uh, fraud? 
or uh, would it potentially be a criminal charge by the Justice Department? That's what we're going to discuss. We're going to learn a lot about insider trading today. And so let's bring in Michael now. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Look, you know, obviously there's been a lot of focus recently on insider trading. It's usually a subject that people like you and I uh, work on in in, uh, private in our practice. It's certainly something you have a lot of experience in. And I know a lot of our listeners saw what Senator Byrd did, what other senators did in terms of trading, and they immediately thought, okay, this is obviously insider trading. Let's lock the person up. I'm curious if you can explain us as a starting point. What is insider trading? Sure. Um, Insider trading uh, is a very confusing area of the law. I think people have a view uh, of it that says basically it's wrong for somebody to have information and place a trade that the rest of the public doesn't have access to. And that is a a really a misconception. Um, And I find it helpful when talking about insider trading to explain why this is an area of law that is as confusing and the lines are as vague as they are. It's because, in fact, there is no law that Congress has ever passed which says it's illegal to engage in insider trading. Uh, And in fact, the Supreme Court has noted that there is no law which guarantees a level playing field. Um, There is a separate law called securities fraud There are also criminal laws uh, that punish a lot of different fraudulent activities called wire fraud, and there's a criminal securities fraud statute, but none of those make it a crime to trade while in possession of information that others don't have. What they do is they make it a crime to engage in fraud. And so uh, insider trading is actually, in order for it to be prosecuted by the Justice Department or the SEC, what they need to find is that someone has traded based on confidential information that they have been, someone has been entrusted with, and uh, it is deemed by the law to be fraudulent activity if you promise to use information that you've received for one purpose and then use that information to line your own pocket or to tip somebody else so that they, they can line their own pockets. So confidential information usually comes in a different context than a member of Congress. So, you know, can you give us an example of sort of how what's a typical because that's that I will confess to you, Michael, my experience is only in investigating um, and representing people in sort of traditional insider trading cases. I think it's helpful for people to understand what those look like. Uh, before we move to this unusual context, I would say, of a member of Congress. So what does a, a typical insider trading case look like? Sure. I, I will give uh, you uh, an example that I think really tells the story of what kind of classic insider trading is. And it's a case that I handled when I was a federal prosecutor uh, a while ago. Um, I prosecuted the CEO of a public company called Imclone Systems, and the CEO's name was Sam Waxel. And uh, Dr. Waxel um, uh, was leading this company whose uh, it was a a drug company and they had a drug in development called Herbitux, which is a colorectal uh, cancer treatment. People had high expectations. Um, Dr. Waxel got a call from the Food and Drug Administration that told him, bad news, Uh, it turns out that we are going to be giving you a refusal to file letter, which is sort of like a rejection. It's like a temporary rejection, but it's very bad news. And uh, Dr. Waxel knew exactly what that would do to the stock price of Imclone Systems. 
And so he immediately uh, had his accountant call his broker and try to sell all the Imcolon stock that he held. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he called his family members and had them uh, try to sell all the Imcolon stock that they held. That is just classic insider trading. An officer of a public company who is betraying his or her shareholders by taking information uh, that they are supposed to be keeping confidential, that they've been entrusted with, only so that they can serve the interests of the company and its shareholders. And instead, they're trying to profit, uh, taking that confidential information and stick it in their pocket and make a buck in this circumstance, avoiding significant uh, losses. That is the classic kind of insider trading. Uh, employee of a public company, knows con- gets, he knows confidential information that's going to be moving the price of the stock, and they try to either profit off of it or avoid losses and trade. That is deemed insider trading, and it's fraud because uh, the law looks at it this way. The company's officer basically makes an implicit promise to the company and its shareholders, look, I'm going to get paid a big salary. Um, I'm going to be entrusted with confidential information. I promise that I'm going to use that information that I've been entrusted with only to serve the interests of the company and its shareholders. And so when that officer takes that information and tries to use it for their own personal gain, that's deemed a lie or a fraudulent act. And that is classic insider trading. Well, what you're not saying, uh, Michael, of course, is that this is a, the Imclone case is a very famous case that you prosecuted. And what a lot of our listeners probably know about that case is that someone named Martha Stewart was involved in the case. Uh, you, I, I, you gave, I think, the closing argument in that trial. And famous, you know, she was famously prosecuted, and I know a lot of people believe that she was prosecuted for insider trading, but she was not. Do you, can you just explain that for our listeners? Sure. Uh, so uh, that investigation began because uh, Dr. Waxel uh, was known to have a relationship with Martha Stewart, and she sold her M-Clone stock also the day before the news about the FDA rejection came out, and that's what started the investigation. Um, what was uncovered in that investigation uh, and what was revealed at trial is that she had received uh, that she and Sam Waxel shared a broker, um, and uh, that broker, that stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, a man named Peter Bakanovic, uh, had told her uh, to uh, that Sam Waxel was dumping all of his stock, the CEO of Imclone, the day before the FDA decision was due was dumping a stock and that she may want to act on it. She traded on that information. She was not prosecuted for insider trading. uh, But what happened was during the course of the investigation, she was interviewed by the FBI, the Justice Department. I was the assistant United States attorney at the time, uh, interviewed her, and she gave a false explanation for why she sold that stock. Uh, Turned out that she and her broker had cooked up a story uh, to lie to the FBI and the Justice Department and the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission about the true reason that she sold her stock. And so what she was actually prosecuted for was obstruction of justice and making false statements to federal agents, uh, as opposed to the insider trading itself. Well, I, I will say that uh, all of us, I think, and including our listeners, are very familiar at this point with uh, being prosecuted for uh, making false statements to the FBI or very well aware that that's a separate crime, given all the recent prosecutions for that. Um, l- let me focus now. You know, you talked a moment ago about the fiduciary duty that 
someone like um, uh, uh, Mr. Wexel had for his company. So how could potentially a member of Congress be liable for insider trading? Uh, that you know, They obviously, unlike a CEO, they're not representing shareholders or a company. Yeah, I guess it helps uh, if I would have actually answered the question that you started us off with, which is what is insider trading? And I think that's a helpful level set. And let me try to answer that more directly. So insider trading is a form of fraud. It has elements. And here's what you need to find. It's, there aren't that many, but the government needs to prove them. And that is that the information that the person who traded received was non-public, non-public information. It's not in the public domain, not available to the public. It is material, meaning it is information that has to be important to the average investor, or put another way, it would be information that significantly alters the total mix of information that's available. In other words, not every tiny detail that somebody receives is going to be insider trading. It has to be that significantly alters the total mix of information that's available to the general public. And then third is the really the most important component of it, and that is must have been revealed in breach of a duty of trust and confidence. In other words, that this was supposed to be confidential information that somebody owed a duty of trust and confidence imposed by the law not to reveal it and not to trade on it. And when they did so, that's the fraudulent act that makes it insider trading. So it needs to be all those things. Now, that that duty of trust and confidence can exist uh, in a lot of places. It can exist in a company where employees may owe a confidentiality obligation because they've signed a confidentiality obligation, a confidentiality agreement, or perhaps there's an employee manual at that company that says um, you need to keep certain kinds of information confidential. And when somebody discloses that information, if it's non-public and if it's also material, it would significantly alter the total mix of information that's available. If that happens, then that's insider trading. Now, you asked what happens when a member of Congress, a senator, uh, how could they be prosecuted for insider trading? And the answer is really it's the same analysis that one needs to uh, uh, put in uh, put in action. Um, what kind of information? You got to look at the kind of information that the senator or the congressman has. And that is, is the information in the public domain or isn't it? is the information important enough that one could say that it would significantly alter the total mix of information that's available? And then the third element is really the most important and sometimes the hardest to analyze. And that is, was the information received by the senator or the congressperson under circumstances where that senator or congressperson owed a duty to keep that information confidential? So, one thing that, and this is an interesting point, uh, Michael, is you know when we when this news about Burr broke, I certainly I had a, had a lot of experience with insider trading, but didn't ha- hadn't thought really about this issue whether members of Congress could be held liable. When I was looking online and and talking to some uh, other lawyers that I know well, I was looking at something called the Stock the Stock Act of 2012, which you know, claimed to be enacted to prohibit members of Congress from using non-public information derived from their official positions for personal benefit. And if people Google uh, when they get off, uh, when they uh, are finished listening to this podcast and and look, you know, there's a lot of discussion online about members of Congress not being liable for insider trading until the Stock Act of 2012 was passed. 
Do you think that the Stock Act changed the landscape, or do you think that actually members of Congress would have been liable uh, prior to 2012? I, I think that the Stock Act, which uh, is, uh, is, is a clever acronym for the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act, really <laughs> did, not, did not do too much legally, uh, although it did have a big impact on the scrutiny that senators and Congress people uh, will face for their own trading. Now, why do I say that it didn't do too much? Well, let's talk first about what the Stock Act did. What the Stock Act did is it said uh, that a member of Congress cannot, or, or any uh, federal agency employee, cannot trade based on information uh, that they're supposed to keep confidential if it's material and non-public. That's all it says. And uh, as I've explained, that was really always the law. If a member of Congress uh, or a federal agency employee received information and they were supposed to keep it confidential, they were under a duty of confidence with respect to that information, and this information was also material non-public, even before the passage of the Stock Act, they could still be prosecuted for uh, insider trading or some of the other criminal statutes which are used to prosecute conduct uh, that falls within that, uh, that bucket. So the Stock Act itself didn't really accomplish much legally because it, 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 the same legal liability had always uh, existed. Um, if a member of Congress had a confidential briefing, they're told you need to keep it confidential. The information is material and it's non-public. They could have been pursued for insider trading uh, just as much before the passage of the Stock Act in 2012 as after the passage of the Stock Act uh, in 2012. So what did the Stock Act do? Well, what it did is it really stepped up the SEC and the Justice Department's focus on uh, trading where the information comes not from a public company, but emanates from government. And there was a huge step up in scrutiny uh, at the Securities and Exchange Commission and at the Justice Department of looking for insider trading cases where the information emanated from Congress or from, uh, or from government, from a federal uh, agency. That was the biggest impact of the Stock Act. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, I, I'll, I'll sort of give a peek behind the curtain here and just say when I was kind of scrambling to figure out uh, congressional liability for insider trading and I talked to others, you know, a lot of a lot of you know, I was talking to a couple of lawyers uh, actually also in New York. I know you practice in New York and we were trying to, to pour over this. And we were concerned that potentially the, uh, there could be a challenge to the fact that the information here in this particular case isn't related to a specific company. In other words, it's not about, you know, hey, there's going to be an FDA decision about a particular drug related to a certain company or something about a, a company, but about the market in general. I mean, do you think that the fact that the information that, that is at issue here in the case of um, Senator Burr and other senators uh, making uh, trades was related to the economy as a whole versus uh, related to a specific company? Or do you think the fact that uh, the information was received in a confidential briefing uh, is enough uh, and there's no real legal challenge to or potential legal challenge to the fact that the information doesn't relate to a specific company? Well, it's a great question, and uh, it certainly is a fact that would make the prosecution um, of a senator in these circumstances much more difficult. As a technical matter, 
it uh, it is it is not a defense that the information is about the economy writ large because the elements that need to be analyzed are still the same. Um, was this information that was used to trade uh, confidential information? That's element one. Element two is, in the, is this information non-public? That's element two. And, and by the way, with respect to the duty of trust or confidence or whether it's non-public, that can be about anything. It could be about one company, it could be about 10 companies, or it can be about the economy, uh, at least in theory. The third element, that of materiality, makes the nexus between the information and the trading um, a more relevant question. Uh, because the question is, is the information that Senator Burr received in this confidential briefing, um, is it in fact, did it significantly alter the total mix of information about the stock that he then traded? And there, because it is not about a company, but rather about the economy, um, that makes that nexus uh, much more uh, difficult to see. It's much more tangential and could be um, another hurdle that uh, the Justice Department or the SEC would face in bringing a prosecution. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and, we're, and we'll swing to that later when we get into the facts of this specific case. I, I will say one thing to just help listeners understand what they're hearing is, you know, I was concerned that there might be a, a challenge to the Stock Act writ, writ large. You know, in other words, it's a new statute, hasn't been tested much. You could imagine a, a challenge to that, a legal challenge to that statute, or a challenge to this type of prosecution categorically. It sounds like you're more optimistic um, about, you know, whether I guess it depends on your point of view, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic, but you're, you're more optimistic about, um, let's say, the SEC's ability or the DOJ's ability to enforce uh, the insider trading laws against members of Congress. The issue really is kind of comes down to the facts and circumstances of the specific case and whether they have sufficient evidence to prove um, that a particular member of Congress uh, engaged in insider trading. Well, there is an overlay to this that actually does make prosecuting a, uh, a, a member of Congress much more difficult than prosecuting uh, like a, an employee of a public company or something like that. And that is uh, something called the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. And that has been interpreted to protect uh, the open discussion between members of Congress and their constituents. And this really um, goes to the idea uh, of whether or not the information received by the congressperson was subject to a duty of trust and confidence. Can't, under what's, and it, it really, it, it, it uh, focuses on us on the question of under what circumstances can a member of Congress really have a confidentiality obligation with respect to the information they receive? Because that member of Congress, in defending against an investigation or prosecution, would say, hey, this information... I can't be required to keep information confidential because the speech and debate clause protects my ability to communicate with my constituents regarding legislative matters. I always have to be free. My speech to my constituents is constitutionally protected. And so nobody can actually hold me to a legal confidentiality obligation because my speech is always protected. And that would be a separate legal defense. Uh, uh, to a prosecution of a member of Congress for insider trading that wouldn't be available to uh, to the normal citizen. 
Yeah, I know that some of our listeners are thinking like, oh, come on, these are, you know, would somebody really make that argument? And the answer is absolutely. If if you or I um, were representing a member of Congress who was accused of insider trading, of course, you'd have a responsibility to make that argument. And the speech and de- debate clauses in the Constitution, because, of course, the, I think the framers were concerned about uh, potentially having the executive branch misuse its power to prosecute members of Congress who are speaking out against the uh, president or the executive branch. So let me let me let's turn to this facts of the specific case. So so specifically, you know, Senator Burr sold up to one point seven two million dollars in stock. And at the at that time, he was getting daily briefings about the coronavirus. We don't know what information uh, he was receiving in those briefings because they were obviously confidential. They were secret briefings. Uh, and, and he was, but he had publicly written an op-ed, sort of downplaying concerns about the virus. Around that same time, the president was also downplaying the threat posed by the virus, uh, and and Burr wasn't contradicting what the president's remarks were. Uh, we also, also the the reporting indicates that he that he, not only did he sell uh, between six hundred twenty-eight thousand and one point seventy-two one point seven two million in stock in thirty-three separate transactions. Those 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 sales included holdings in two major hotel chains, and so um, I guess the, to me the, the the issues here that I would see I mean we've already heard from uh, from uh, from Senator Burr his argument is that he was quote closely following CNBC's daily health and science reporting out of its Asia bureaus at that time. And then he was relying on public news reports. So how can you explain to us how the SEC or the DOJ would go about proving that his trading was not based on public information, but was in in fact based on confidential information he received at the time? Well, I think there's two. uh, The first two stops that the SEC or the Justice Department would make uh, in trying to determine whether or not there is a viable uh, prosecution to bring would be first to find out what was said in the briefing. Um, there must have been a, a number of, uh, there's a number of witnesses, the people giving the briefing, the other people that received the briefing to find out exactly what was said. Um, and is the information, even though it's been called in the press a confidential briefing, um, in fact, was the information that was communicated in this briefing, was it already in the public domain in some way, shape or form? In other words, if you were watching CNBC's uh, coverage from their Asia Bureau. In fact, would you have learned exactly the same information that Senator Burr learned uh, in the course of that briefing? If so, then the information is public or it's not non-public and therefore uh, a case really couldn't be met, made. So that, in my view, would be the first stop uh, for the SEC and the Justice Department. The second stop would be uh, to examine uh, what Senator Burr was saying about the briefing or what he was saying about why he was selling these stocks. How do you do that? Well, they could issue subpoenas for his emails or his uh, instant messages, his uh, iMessages, um, and find out who he was communicating with uh, about the briefing and also about his trades. And that may reveal, uh, it may reveal information about his motivations um, for why he was uh, why he was choosing to sell the stock on, on that day. And it may reveal that he, in fact, was using information from the confidential briefing. Or if, for example, he's calling his broker and saying that he uh, was uh, selling the stock because of what he just saw, 
on CNBC uh, from the Asia Bureau, that would certainly be corroborative of what he is saying today is his defense. That's right. And, you know, uh, to me, the the issue with this case uh, from a let's say a prosecution perspective uh, would be that there's a lot, there was a lot of people even by that point talking about the coronavirus. And so you could go online and, and I bet if you search online, you'll find lots of articles from that time and lots of news reports of various types talking about the dangers of the coronavirus. And for every person like Trump who was downplaying the virus, there were people who were sounding the alarm. And so it's going to be hard to pin down specific information that he received that was non-public. And it seems to me, and I'd be curious what your take is, obviously we don't know the facts of this case. We don't know what was in the confidential briefings. We don't know what was in the instant messages and text messages and and voicemails and other private communications of the senator. But it would seem to me that this case would you know, possibly turn on those communications and whether or not Burr said something in a communication that makes clear his intent. In other words, you know, in a text message, oh, my God, I just got out of this briefing. You know, we need to talk right away. That would be very strong evidence. And it would really a lot, I think, would turn on potentially his communications. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. Um, in, in all white collar prosecutions, um, uh, all over states, it, but in many, many uh, white collar prosecutions, they are built based on something that somebody dashed off in an email or in some kind of uh, uh, instant message uh, in which, uh, at least from the prosecution's perspective, it reveals what their motivations are. It seems to me the other hurdle for for uh, investigators would be proving materiality. In other words, for certain stocks like the hotel stocks, I think a strong connection could be made that the reason that Burr was selling hotel stocks is because he knew that people aren't going to want to go on, you know, on trips if they're if they're sheltered at home in a, in a pandemic. But particularly for some of the other stocks, and they might end up just focusing on the hotel stocks for that reason. You know, I think it's harder for them to prove a nexus between the the down price of of a stock that's a more general stock in the economy with the news that he's getting in a briefing about the coronavirus. What do you think about that element? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, materiality is one of those concepts in the law, which is it has a lot of different definitions. Um, but one of the things that the law looks to in defining what is material information, uh, one of those things is it needs to be pretty specific information. Um, and there needs to be a real line that one can draw between the information and the movement of, uh, of a particular security. So when you're talking about information that's not directly related to a particular company, uh, it can be more difficult for uh, the prosecution to, uh, uh, to be able to prove materiality. The one thing I'll note on that, however, is that materiality, I mean, ultimately, when, a, when the government's deciding to bring a case, one of the things that they need to decide are is, well, what are my chances in front of a jury? And materiality is going to be one of those issues that a jury of 12 citizens gets to get, they get to decide that. Um, and sometimes it can be pretty hard for someone charged with insider trading to be able to say, yeah, no, I saw the significance of this information. I received the information. I traded right away. My trades were significant. I dumped my whole portfolio. And so to me, it was important but it wouldn't be important to the average investor. That can be a, a difficult sell to a jury. And oftentimes 
when the issue is materiality, the Justice Department or the Securities and Exchange Commission, they feel pretty good about their ability to prove that information, even general information, uh, is going to be found by a jury of 12 citizens to be material information. Yeah, I have to say, I think that if I was representing uh, Senator Burr, I would be very concerned about how any of this would play to a jury. You know, the uh, the reaction, not only online, but offline, uh, was very negative towards Senator Burr. He seen, you know, and he there were calls for his resignation from, uh, you know, multiple Republicans as well as Democrats. So I, I think that I could I could see a jury you know, being very quick to condemn this conduct. So, he, you know, the, the really, I, to me, uh, a lot of this is going to, would would come down to, I, I would think, uh, whether or not he had a good argument that he was relying on public information or not. Uh, I think materiality is the sort of thing that, from a legal perspective, I think has some, we can have an argument about it, but I get your point. I mean, to me, I think a lot of jurors would have a lot of would have trouble seeing this as not material just to a stock price, given the the massive impact in the economy. I agree. I really think that where the rubber is going to meet the road in determining whether or not a case is going to be able to be brought um, really rests on two issues. And that is, were these senators told anything in that briefing that was truly non-public information or would it be available to anyone who was truly studying uh, the status of the epidemic uh, at that time. Um, and the other question is, um, was he under uh, an obligation to keep this information confidential uh, or was he allowed to share the information he learned in this briefing with constituents um, and others? And I think really that's going to be the two issues. And, I, you know, in analyzing the first one, the first thing that my first place my mind goes to is, um, I, I'm looking a little bit. People are certainly critical of the U.S. government's response to uh, the corona, the, to this uh, pandemic and how slow it's been. And it really begs the question, did the U.S. government really know something about the status of this pandemic uh, that uh, was not already public? You'd like to think that if the U.S. government did have information hmm. uh, that was truly non-public and truly chilling, that the government would have acted faster than it ultimately did. Yeah, you would like to think so. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners are skeptical of that. The evidence will come out eventually uh, at some point or another. But but I think that that I think you've identified the issues with the Burr prosecution. I will say the hurdles for a potential case against Burr, whether it's on the civil side or criminal side, and we could talk about that distinction in a minute. Is, is much I think a Burr case or an investigation is much stronger than an investigation of these the other senators. And just to be clear, Senators Kelly Loeffler from Georgia, uh, Diane Feinstein in California, James Inhofe in Oklahoma also sold stock during that time period. But they did have you know much better uh, you know justification for that at least publicly. In other words. You know Kelly Loeffler, who was heavily criticized, I know, because her husband is the uh, is the uh, CEO of uh, ICE, Intercontinental Exchange, that owns the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, she said that she makes she does not make investment decisions for her portfolio. The decisions are made by multiple third party advisors without her or her husband's knowledge or involvement. She provided some documents that she claims prove that. And because the documents say that the transactions were notified to her on or after February 16th, 2020, 
you know, uh, you know, and certainly Diane Feinstein says that her um, all of her uh, stock is in a blind trust. Uh, Mr. Inhofe uh, also uh, said that they were uh, routine investment moves that that were made by his financial advisor without his knowledge. Those seem to me, if they're true, and and somebody should, I suppose, should take a look at that. If true, uh, those would provide a much stronger defense than uh, what Senator Burr has said, uh, and and that would seem to me uh, obvious, because even to our listeners, because it would provide a defense that you know, obviously, the investment advisors presumably wouldn't have that confidential information, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that each of those senators have have come forward with explanations for the trading, which basically says. I didn't use any of this information. I wasn't even the one that made the trading decision. And if they're not the ones that are actually making the trading decision, then they can't be guilty of insider trading. Uh, as I understand Senator Burr's response, it was something along the lines of uh, the stock hadn't gone down yet or something like that. Uh, it didn't seem quite as uh, compelling. It does look like it may have been motivated by whatever it is he heard. Now, I, I will tell you that as I've speculated in my mind as to what may have uh, been said in that confidential briefing, I, I have a little bit of a jaded view of uh, what actually happens uh, with respect to the administration's briefings of Congress. And I sort of figure that um, aside from, you know, perhaps matters of national security, when the administration is talking to Congress, I think they're probably assuming information is going to leak um, but just because information tends to leak out of Congress pretty, uh, pretty frequently. Um, and that's what has, again, only, it's only my speculation. I don't have any information about what really happened, but my uh, operating assumption was that, uh, that the information being provided to Congress is probably pretty similar to what President Trump was telling the public, which is, oh, everything's okay. Uh, everything's well in hand. Don't worry about a thing. Um, and that may have caused a senator like Senator Burr to say, wow, I don't believe that at all. Uh, the way I'm hearing <laughs> this information about how everything's in hand is making me think just the opposite, or it just may have caused him to think about uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic um, in a different light or in a different way that may have motivated a sale as opposed to any information that was received in the briefing. It just may have caused him to think uh, about uh, about it. Maybe they talked about potential economic impacts, but that the administration didn't think there would be any potential economic impact uh, because everything was okay and well in hand. Uh, and this was just, uh, as the president says, a, uh, a Chinese virus, and we have nothing to worry about. And um, <laughs> if you heard that information and you just walked away a little bit skeptical, uh, that very well could have caused someone to think about their portfolio, but it wouldn't mean that they received uh, material non-public information that they were under a duty to keep confidential. Well, you know, that that is certainly another potential line of uh, defense for Burr, although I, I have to say him talking about surfing the uh, surfing the uh, channels and watching CNBC didn't inspire a lot of confidence for me. I would have liked to think that uh, if I was representing Mr. Burr, we would have come up with a better statement than that. Uh, but we, I, you know, he's got some time to work on it. I, I did notice one step that he took is he self-reported himself uh, to the Senate Ethics Committee. Uh, it seems to me that's a pretty inadequate uh, body to be investigating this. It would seem to be a better something that would be better handled by the SEC or DOJ. I, I'm curious, first of all, what, what, what your thoughts are regarding whether this is something appropriate for the SEC to take a look at. 
I think it for sure is something that is appropriate for the SEC uh, to take a look at, and I'd be I'd be surprised if uh, if they're not um, uh, looking at it already. Um, I, I again, maybe I'm uh, cynical, but I assume that his self-report to the ethics committee uh, was an effort to try to stave off an SEC investigation uh, by saying you don't need to look at this. The ethics committee's already looking at it. Um, uh, it would mm-hmm. be wrong for the SEC, which is part of the executive branch, uh, to be looking at this until after the legislative branch uh, has already reviewed it. After all, um, the issue in an insider trading case is, did somebody misuse information that they received? And the information I would have received would have been in the course of my duties as a congressperson. So really, I think Senator Burr is hoping to convince people that the appropriate body to at least initially consider whether he misused that information in his trading would be the ethics committee. And so I think, I think it's, it may be tactical, that self-report, uh, as a way to uh, delay or avoid a government investigation by the SEC or the Justice Department. I think that effort would, would be unsuccessful. Yeah, I have to say, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I view that as a tactical move by him. It certainly wouldn't deter me if I was uh, working on enforcement in the SEC. I mean, the, the reality is this is not the sort of issue. It's a complicated, insider trading is a complicated thing to investigate. It's the sort of thing that the SEC does regularly, the DOJ does regularly. They're better equipped uh, to take a look at this. And, and frankly, uh, given the outcry over this, it's something the SEC should uh, for the public could certainly take a long look at. I, I'm curious if, if you could explain uh, for our listeners the difference between the SEC and DOJ taking a look at this. In other words, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I had cases that I, when I was uh, investigating, I would investigate in parallel with the, the SEC. In other words, at the same time as them, and sometimes we would have a joint determination, maybe the SEC uh, or the CFTC would issue charges and then I would issue my charges at the same time. And then in other times, uh, there, we would we would um, investigate one after the other. In other words, the SEC would have a long you know, civil investigation and then there'd be a DOJ follow-on. You know, I'm curious, you know, if you can not, you know, not only explain to the listeners what the difference would be between those two investigations, but also uh, why you know the SEC might go first or act in parallel with DOJ and what might be more appropriate here? Sure. So first, let's talk about the differences in the two investigations. So the Justice Department um, is a criminal uh, enforcement agency, meaning that the the relief they're looking for is to put people in jail, um, and that's really it. When they're pursuing individuals, uh, what their their penalty is. Uh, is to take away someone's liberty. They got to go to jail. Um, and, and insider trading is one of those uh, kinds of conduct that can be prosecuted equally by both the Justice Department, meaning they want to put you in jail for insider trading, or by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The difference is the SEC does not have criminal enforcement powers. They don't have the ability to put people in jail. So what do they want to do? Well, the SEC has the power to exact uh, monetary penalties, um, they uh, can force somebody to disgorge uh, the profits that they made from insider trading. They uh, can also uh, basically impact somebody's reputation. They can bring what's called, uh, an oddly called an anti-fraud injunction, which says you can't commit fraud anymore. 
um, <laughs> which the real impact is it drags somebody's name through the mud and exposes them as someone who had engaged in uh, law, uh, uh, conduct that violates the securities laws. Uh, they can also seek to uh, suspend you or bar you from serving as an officer or director of a public company or from being associated with a broker dealer or a registered investment advisor. Um, those are the powers that uh, certainly are more limited, but it is easier. In some ways, it is easier for the SEC to bring a case than it is for the Justice Department. The SEC has a lower burden of proof. In order to take away somebody's liberty to put somebody in jail for insider trading, the Justice Department has to prove their case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Whereas for the SEC, they need only show uh, they need to prove their case by preponderance of the evidence, meaning that it's more likely than not, um, or the scales uh, are tipped just a little bit more in the SEC's favor uh, than in the defendant's favor. Also, for the Justice Department to bring an insider trading case, they really have to show that you knew that this was material non-public information disclosed in breach of the duty of trust and confidence, and you were therefore acting with an intent to commit fraud. For the SEC, they have the lower hurdle of showing, of being, proving their case by proving that uh, somebody acted recklessly, meaning there were red flags waving uh, that would have told uh, somebody that, uh, that, that this was material non-public information disclosed in breach of a duty of trust and confidence, and somebody chose to avoid confirming whether or not this information was improper and decided to uh, go forward and, and trade anyway. Now, people often ask, well, under what circumstances, if, if the conduct is the same, under what circumstances does the SEC bring a case only uh, and they just seek these civil remedies versus the Justice Department uh, 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 pursuing a case and trying to take away somebody's liberty? And that is a really hard line, if not an almost impossible line to uh, find. There really aren't any particular metrics that tell you whether or not there's a criminal case or an SEC case that should be brought. And I would say in the circumstances of, uh, of, of something like this, and you ask the question, who does the investigation first, the SEC, the Justice Department, or is it all the same? Given the high-profile nature of this particular case, um, I think we could be pretty confident that there will be uh, members of the Justice Department and the SEC that are going to be investing, investigating at the same time. Um, I would be surprised if the Justice Department just took a back seat and allowed the SEC to conduct their investigation first. It's not impossible, uh, but I think it would be unlikely uh, given the high-profile nature of the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've done both, uh, and I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. I mean, the SEC and, and DOJ have different uh, tools that they use. The SEC is going to be, for example, would, will likely be subpoenaing uh, Senator Burr and asking him to sit for a deposition or give test. What's really giving testimony? So he would sit under oath uh, in a conference room uh, with a court reporter and you know answer their questions. Uh, they would be making civil issuing civil subpoenas for documents and things like that. Obviously, the DOJ has the grand jury authority um, to compel testimony, and you know often. Uh, I, I, as a prosecutor, would be lit, kind of sitting in the background while uh, people were, uh, you know, complying with an SEC investigation and determining whether or not, you know, uh, down the road I might act. Uh, and those and those individuals would be making decisions about whether to take the fifth or not without knowing for sure exactly what the DOJ would do. Uh, on the other hand, there, you know, sometimes, the, you know, although the SEC and DOJ aren't acting 
together, they're acting in parallel, um, the actions of one, uh, let's say the DOJ issuing a grand jury subpoena, can have an impact in the other. In other words, the, the specter of a potential DOJ investigation can cause somebody not to um, not to testify before the SEC and take the fifth, and that would hurt them in their case against the SEC in a significant way. So I think there's a lot of interplay between those two things, and none of that could potentially if, – if the DOJ does take a look at it as well as the SEC, I don't think that would bode very well for, uh, for Senator Burr. I think you're absolutely right. Those are all excellent points. Well, I – I have to. I want to thank you, uh, Michael. This is uh, interesting. I have to say, you know, th- this all th- certainly Senator Burr's activity looks uh, suspicious. It's the sort of thing you and I would investigate uh, if we were uh, still in government. But it's it's definitely a complicated matter. Uh, I, you know, th- one thing I will say is a lot of there's been a lot of outcry uh, from our listeners who and others who are concerned that you know the insider trading laws are too difficult to prove that these that these cases should be easier to bring i'm curious what your perspective is on that as somebody who's been on both sides of this as a prosecutor and on the defense side do, do you think our you know how you know generally speaking what would you say to a layperson who's surprised by the different obstacles that it takes to prove a case like this yeah i think i would share um, your listeners uh, confusion about that I mean, it, it seems like um, uh, there shouldn't it shouldn't be so hard, and that the law should provide a level playing field. Um, there's a lot of good arguments why one could say that hey, everybody should have access when they enter the markets to the same information. And a lot of people, when they hear that, in fact, there is no law that Congress has ever passed that says that, they're surprised and they're troubled. Um, and there's a lot of people that feel that it helps people. Uh, have faith in our markets if they feel that everybody has, uh, sh- at least is legally entitled to the same kind of information. So it, it is, uh, it certainly is concerning. Yeah, I think that in this case, as, as in a lot of other cases, uh, a lot of times what, what the public is learning is that the laws maybe aren't exactly where they should be. Uh, and uh, really, hopefully, what that'll do is cause some reform in the future. Well, Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you uh, joining us and uh, sharing your expertise. It, you're, it was, I learned a lot. It was actually really informative to me as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.